1: Welcome to the New Books Network.
2: This is the Capitalism and Freedom in the 21st Century podcast, where we talk about economics, markets, and public policy. I'm John Hartley, your host. Today, I'm joined by Luke Froeg who is a professor of management at the Vanderbilt University Owen School of Management and the former chief economist at the Department of Justice Antitrust Division and former chief economist at the FTC. Luke is one of the nation's foremost experts on antitrust issues and is a leading expert in
0: competition policy. Welcome, Luke. Yeah, thank you for having me. I'm thrilled to be here.
2: Luke, I'm curious, like, where did you grow up and how did you first get interested in economics? Like, I know you did your undergrad at Stanford. Was that where you got interested in economics and where you sort of decided that you wanted to get a PhD in economics?
0: Yeah, I grew up in San Diego. I actually wanted to live at home and and go to UCSD. And my mom kicked me out of the house and made me go to Stanford. So it was definitely my second choice. But
2: you grew up uh, in La Jolla, right?
0: Yeah. Yeah. 50 yards from the beach. I mean, I, I had no idea, you know, when I grew up there, it was a middle-class, you know, it was a middle-class suburb and, and it's just, you go back there now and oh my gosh. It's Uh,
2: funny. I met your parents uh, once um, on a family vacation I didn't meet you; um, and uh-huh. it's just uh, a happenstance kind of thing. But uh, I remember I had heard a lot about you back in in twenty ten, and, and since then we, we've we've met and got to know each other uh, okay. a, a little bit. But um, but you, so you grew up in La Jolla, yeah, and then you went to Stanford to Northern California. Uh, uh, is that where you first got interested in economics?
0: Yeah, no. So I I was I wanted to be a physicist, and so I studied. You know, I got really excited about uh, physics when I was in high school. I took uh, took a physics class and I thought this is so cool you know I like the idea of modeling everything and that you could understand the entire world with with physics and I and I got to physics and I mean I got to Stanford and I started taking physics and you have to well over half your required courses are are math and and physics and so it didn't leave much time for for much else and I found that you know, I was, you know, I was one of the smartest kids or, you know, the kids who did the best in my high school, in my classes. But when I got to Stanford, I was just an average physics student. And um, so I, I and my roommate was taking econ and he kind of explained to me what it was. I had no idea what it was anyway. So I, he showed me some of his problems, you know, and, and I could do them. And, and I kind of got interested with in this, it was the exact same tools as physics, and I love the idea of being able to model stuff and understand stuff through models. And so I started taking uh, econ, and uh, yeah, it was, it was, I was—I really liked it, and I—I I got interested. At the time, I was on the left side of the political, way left side of the political spectrum. I lived in Columbia, the you know, the social change through nonviolence co-op. And I got, you know, got interested in Marxist economics. I studied really hard. I remember, I remember this one, this one guy who's a senior, you know, he's a senior at the house. I was, I was in 10th grade and, uh, you know, and he, and he, you know, he talked me through Das Kapital and I was taking uh, John Gurley, who is a really good teacher and he was a Marxist. And uh, he was in the
2: Stanford he, econ department at the time.
0: Yeah, he was in the econ department at Stanford. And he he introduced me to he taught I think he taught the core microeconomics class and he was a really good teacher. It was really fun. And I thought, man, this is great. And uh, and and then I took his follow on Marx's class. And I and I look back, you know, I had a, a, a copy of Das Kapital. That was the reading in the class. Communist Mas- Manifesto and Das Kapital. And there's there are a couple other readings but um and I just I look back on that I, I underlined everything. I just tried really hard to understand it. I could never understand it. And uh it was only about a decade later, you know, when I when I you know I look back on it, I go, Oh yeah, you know, they they don't they don't consider incentives, you know, they they just assume that you know everybody's gonna work, you know, for the common good. And uh oh my gosh. I'll tell you a funny story when when I lived in Colombe, they they modeled the house, and they still do, I think. Um I have, you know, they run the house by consensus. And it's really easy to decide, you know, which third world political, you know, revolutionary we're gonna lend our support to. But when it came, it was an old frat house, and there were some really nice singles and some really terrible quads. And when it came to decide, you know, every quarter we'd we'd decide who lived in which room, and we'd make the we'd have this consensus meeting, and and you'd have people arguing that for the good of the house and for the good of the it's social change through nonviolence. That was the that was the theme of the house. I deserved the really nice single, <laughs> and and I, and I go this this can't be right, and and it just it, it was kind of the first inkling that I got. You know that that the the idea of kind of collectivism just just doesn't hold up with individual incentives and and people were just naked naked self-interest in these in you know who decides who gets to live in which room but when when there wasn't a cost to 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 lending our support to third world revolutionaries you know that was easy to decide but anyway it's kind of it was kind of funny looking back on it
2: that that's fascinating it's it's funny how uh central planning seems to work really well I guess in a in a small family where you have sort of a you know, a dictatorial sort of parent or two. Uh, civil planning works qu- quite well, strangely. Uh, but when you expand it to, to more people, you know, I guess to the size of a frat house or, or a school or a country, things seem to go uh, um, really south in terms of f- f- efficient allocations.
0: I like to show my students at Vanderbilt. I show them some. Uh, there's a great Tyler Cowan and Alex Tabarrok at, the, at uh, George Mason run this uh, kind of online university called Marginal Revolution. And uh, they have these great series of videos, and one of them is on private property rights. And they talk about, you know, the, the birth of modern China, which was, you know, in Zhao Gang village when these villagers got fed up with with collective, you know, ownership and nobody, nobody's working very hard because, you know you, you, know, you, got, you know, you got all these people in the village and you only get, you know, a, a fraction of, you know, if you produce an extra bushel of wheat, you only get a fraction of that. And so you had people, people free riding, and uh, they divided up the collective land into pri- private property and signed everybody a parcel of land, and they called it the household responsibility system. and And output went up by a factor of six when you, you know, you have the incentive aligning effects of private property. And uh, and yeah, I just I'm, I've shown that to all my students, but the same thing happened. Same thing happened in in Vietnam. Same thing happened in with the pilgrims. When John Bradford came over on on the Mayflower, they had collective land ownership. Nobody was working. And uh, and and then, you know, he has signed private property. And and that, you know, that we we all learned the myth mythology of of. Of Thanksgiving, you know, we're, the reality of Thanksgiving was that that it was private property that we all all would be thankful for. So I make my kids watch that every Thanksgiving, and then we go around the table. What are you thankful for? And everybody says private property. <laughs>
2: oh, that's too funny. That that's too funny. So. I take you know you decided to get a a PhD in economics while you were at Stanford and and you got into the uh, University of Wisconsin you did your PhD there. I'm curious, how did you first get interested in antitrust and, and competition policy?
0: Yeah, so I I wanted to get out of state. I mean, I got, I could have gone to Stanford. In retrospect, I you know anybody who's listening to this who's a you know going to econ grad school go to the best school you can get get into. And so I probably should have gone to Stanford, but but I wanted to get out of California. I'd spent my whole life in California. And so I went to Wisconsin just because the people were so nice there when I visited and they're really good at econometrics. And that's what I was. I took the first year econometrics when I was at Stanford. And so I studied econometrics at, at Wisconsin and I got a job down at Tulane and that was kind of fun, but I gave a paper at the justice department and, uh, and I wrote my thesis when I was at Wisconsin. On I was a time series macroeconometrician, but I wrote my thesis on uh, time series of profits and concentration, which was I don't know it was it was a esoteric topic, but it was it was in my using my methodology of time series econometrics, and uh, and I gave a paper at the Justice Department. And they offered me a job, and I was the data guy at Justice for eight or ten years. And uh, that's that's basically how I how I get, how I you know and then I learned when, at the Justice Department I learned everything I know about antitrust and competition economics you know
2: that's fantastic so you you grew up as a as a as a staffer um you spent many years as um, as a staffer before um, coming back to academia so I was um,
0: about about. 10 years as a eight or 10 years as a as a as an econometrician at the antitrust division of the of the department of justice and then i and then i then i came back to uh then i got a job offer i decided to go on the, my wife and i were living in uh my late wife and i were living in washington dc and we were the we were the first white heterosexuals in our neighborhood in northeast dc the all the white people after the 68 riots after mlk was assassinated all the white people people left to everywhere in dc and all moved to northwest and uh the 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 block breakers the you know the the were the gay men in the early 80s and when they died of aids then the white heterosexuals moved in and uh i mean it's just and so we were the we were the first white heterosexuals on our block in northeast DC and that was oh, there there are all these kids there on our block and they had you know they'd never we're we're a mile away from the from the best museums in the world best free museums in the world and none of them had ever been so my my wife and I every saturday morning we'd take all our kids in our neighborhood and take them to take them to go see all the you know the the free stuff around and the most fun we had was taking them to the tank museum in aberdeen maryland there is 100 acre big plot of land out in uh, the midst of maryland and uh it's just filled with every tank that's ever been produced it's it's wow. wild yeah you take take your kids there they can play on them as they play on them stuff but it was it was really fun to see all the old tanks
2: wild yeah it's, it's so fascinating just how much history is uh you you can go see uh, around DC, and and it's amazing how much DC has even changed in, in uh, just over the decades. You know, going from you know it's become an extremely um, wealthy place in part because of I think some of these defense buildups during the the, the Reagan and the, the the Bush era. You know, kind of went uh, from being what some people would call you know a CD, very dangerous kind of city to um, uh, you know, a, a very uh, nice and affluent one. I, I'm curious, t- tell me, so you went back to uh, the FTC and, and uh, to become their chief economist, and you, you became uh, the chief economist at uh, the Department of Justice Antitrust Division uh, more recently. Tell me, like, what do these positions do? Like, I guess, you know, the U.S. is somewhat unique in that it's got two antitrust authorities. It's got the DOJ and the FTC, and and, and you're saying they have <laughs> different industries, um, but I'm curious, like, what does the chief economist do? What do these economists working at the FTC and, and the DOJ antitrust division, what, what do they do? On the so the,
0: the chief economist has remarkably little uh, power, you know, and, and part of it is just the federal and you know, the civil service system. You can't fire, hire, promote, reward, punish you can't do anything to align the incentives of the individuals with the goals of, you know, whatever your goals are. And the staff is largely, you know, you know, they're very suspicious of the political appointees. And the advantage I had, at least the first time I went around, you know, I I knew most of the staffers from my time, uh, or I knew a lot of the staffers. And I was I was, you know, I was a staffer like that and we, we'd share, you know, I'd go over there and eat lunch. One of my best friends worked worked at the FTC. So I had the advantage of that. And so I didn't, I, I was able to the, we'd have these Monday morning staff meetings and the bulk of our work was just merger work. So, you know, there, you know, you get a, every merger has to file a heart scout. got, you know, if there's, if they're big enough now, I think it's about 55 million you have to file a form with the federal government called the hart scott form, and it goes to both agencies and they decide whether they want to investigate it. If they both want to investigate it, then they have to, you know, decide whom... Who gets to do it, and um, there's there's a little bit of a kind of historical difference, but you know, basically, if if there's a big merger and they want to investigate it, you know, there'll there'll be a fight over it. But uh, yeah, that's that's and the chief economist. So that's what I did as chief economist. The staff economist, they're organized as functional organizations, and 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 I've actually written a paper about this and why, I mean, some some agencies sprinkle the economists along along with you know with the attorneys in the in the in the in the agencies but justice and the FTC have this functional organization where you where the economists do their own work and they they analyze a merger and send it up the full flagpole and they're just the economist criteria is hey is this merger good or bad and the attorneys have a you know different focus their their focus is hey can we win this one in court And so they're always at odds, or if they're doing their jobs, they should be at odds with each other. They should not be cooperating with each other. And, and it was my job at the top of the food chain, when the, when the recommendations came up from the, from the economists and the recommendation came up from the, from the attorney, it would, it would be up to the senior staff members to go ahead and, uh, decide, you know, to duke it out and at the, at the staff meeting and decide, you know, I would, I, and I would represent the econ point of view and the, the attorneys would represent the staff point of view. And sometimes I disagreed with the staff and sometimes the, you know, the lead attorneys, you know, or the, not the lead attorneys, but the attorney um, managers, they disagreed with their staff too. So, and, and then the, it would ultimately go to the chairman or to the, assistant attorney general if we're over at the justice department um so so anyway yeah that was that was my job as the chief economist
2: that's absolutely fascinating so i want to talk about the history of antitrust for a moment so in the late 19th century early 20th century we start with all the big trust busting era you know big monopolies you know teddy roosevelt sherman act Clayton Act, you know, uh, Lewis Brandy's sort of the first era of, of uh, sort of antitrust policy or any sort of concept of, of antitrust policy. You know, this is also, um, you know, after the first century of kind of seeing some meaningful amount of economic growth in sort of the you know, 1800s, um, you, you, you get this sort of response to, you know, very, very big um, firms, you know, the so-called trust, the big banks, um, you know, the big uh, oil companies, the standard oils and so forth. Um and then sort of a few decades after the war in the sort of 1970s, 1980s, we see uh Bork, the Chicago School, the consumer welfare standard, which was you know very dominant uh from that period of time in antitrust policy making and uh how the judiciary approaches mergers, uh, and how the FTC and, and DOJ approach mergers. And and now we have uh, the in, in the sort of late 2010s, the emergence of these so-called uh, new brandesians. Um, and I'm curious, you know, what do you think about this trajectory? And who do you think has it right here in these sort of opposing uh, uh, schools of thought uh, when it comes to uh, antitrust policy?
0: Well, you know, so what's hap- what I've seen in, in my lifetime. So I got I got there at the tail end of uh, there was actually a uh, Reagan appointed, um, you know, Stanford professor, and he had a very kind of economics approach to to antitrust. When I got to the Justice Department, I was it was the it was the tail end of Reagan, all through Bush, and the beginning of Clinton. That was my that was my tenure there, and and the Reagan Revolution, and and so I'm 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 kind of passing over the earliest part, but but this is what I've seen, and I I don't study history. I kind of have the Joey Ramone view of history that you know that's not where I want to be uh so I don't care about history because that's not where I want to be rock 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 and roll high school <laughs> but so I, I actually don't know that much about the early history of antitrust but but I do know the the history of antitrust you know beginning you know with the tail end of the Reagan Revolution and economists were in con- firmly in control of antitrust policy and the attorneys, you know their their memos would come up, and the Economist memo would come up, and they they often complained that it was harder to get an, a merger challenge out of the Justice Department than it was to win one in court, and and that was largely right. I mean, m- mainly because the courts were the courts were uh, you know they you know this was the this is the time of Vaughn's supermarket, you know, when we had. You know the way the way they analyze mergers they delineate a market and if the shares are big they block it if it's a if if it's a four firm going down to three firm it's a four to three three to two or two to one merger you know you're they're gonna they're gonna challenge it but you know this is the time when they were challenging you know mergers that were you know 20 to 19 mergers you know it was it was just nutty there was no there was no rationale there's no economic rationale for it and the the uh, the the basically starting in the '68 guidelines, you know, they they tried to write down some rationale and say, hey, we're concerned with market power, and so, and and by the time that got to the to the '80s, and I and I I don't know the history of it before it, you know, before I got there, but it was the economists were in charge, and we would, you know, we'd say, look, is this merger going to raise, you know, is this merger going to raise price? And and that was the that was our main concern. And and uh, we would we would build models and and, you know, build empirical models and or or, you know, kind of look at look at look at cross sectionally if there were markets across, you know, like if there's, you know, supermarkets and we see a three to two. You know, if we if we compare a th- a three-firm market with a two-firm market and is the price higher in the in the two-firm market, and that would be that would be an empirical model of merger, or we see consolidation in the industry, and there was some you know, some data that we could look at and we asked ask where whether price went up. But by and large, the most of most of our work was building models. We'd we'd model how firms compete, and then we'd use the model to Forecast or simulate the loss of competition following merger, and basically, what what the major models say is that you know four to three, three to two, and two to one mergers are bad, and that's basically the the mergers we block. But we you know we'd have to support that, and you know it would obviously depend on on how sensitive demand was to price. If if demand is very sensitive to price, and you try to raise price, and you lose a lot of quantity, then you know you're you're making more on the stuff you sell, but you're losing a lot of sales and and um, that that would make the merger uh, unprofitable. And so that's the kind of stuff that and we estimated demand and we simulated, you know, had some you know built models. And what I'm known for is building these very practical, tractable models that are that are actually used by the Justice Department. they're they're online if you want to try them out at competitiontoolbox.com. dot com. But uh, that that actually allow the government to to figure out, you know, hey, how much competition is going to be lost by merger? Now, to relate that back to your question, you know, about the New Brandeisians, that intellectual tradition is still still going strong, and and the Biden appointees who are trying to turn back the clock to, you know, the battle to what I consider the battle days of antitrust the '60s before we had this economic rationale for them. Uh, they're getting, they're getting, you know, they're running into resistance from the staff. They're getting mugged by the, you know, they say the conservative is just a liberal who's been mugged by reality. They're getting mugged by reality. You know, Lena Khan came in wanting to block all mergers and, uh, she's get, you know, she's losing everything in court. And and it's and it, it could you could say, well, it's the Reagan judge or the Trump judges. You know, they they had a lot of appointees and and but but by and large, it's the development of the common law and uh, the common law uh, has evolved. You know, and, it, you know, again, this is this is not my area of expertise. I'm just relying on basically my co-author, uh, this guy, Greg Worden. He he'd spent his whole career at the at the Justice Department, 40 Forty some odd years, he's written, you know, probably three hundred articles on antitrust and and written a book about the history of antitrust. And he's just he's told me that you know that that the courts have moved, you know, and it's very hard to move it back. You can't just come in and say, oh yeah, we're gonna we're gonna turn back. We can bring cases, but we ultimately got to win them in court. And uh, <laughs> they're 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 not very successful at you know kind of turning the law around. And and you know that that's as it should be. I mean, you know, they're not, you know, the, these are enforcement agencies. They're not They're you know, they're not there to make law, even though kind of, that's probably if you ask uh, Chairman Khan, that's probably what she'd say she wants to do. You know, she wouldn't say that in public, but, you know. So it sounds like uh,
2: in terms of like criteria. So in this, I think, pre-Lena Khan, you know, consumer welfare mm-hmm. era, um, of, you know, DOJ, FTC, in, in terms of, Uh, And then then how the courts uh, sort of thought about these things in terms of the the mergers that aren't permissible. These those are sort of horizontal mergers that are sort of, you know, three to one, two to one, four to one um, type um, uh, arrangements. Now, I recall there there was sort of like maybe a change that like vertical mergers are thought of very differently. You know, if um, if there's maybe some sort sort of synergies and that they're they're vertical mergers being, you know, they're not competing um, directly against each other. Instead, um, and they're sort of at different. The two yeah, emerging it, firms it, are at different points in the. Um, uh,
0: right. The way the way I would phrase it, look, is when you when you combine substitutes, you know. So I'm I'm worried that 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 if I raise price, I'm going to lose money to you. I you know I I don't. That's that's what I care about. But if I buy you, that changes my profit calculus. So I'm no longer worried that I'm going to lose lose consumers to you and or dollars to you and so so if i buy you that changes my profit calculus and i'm more willing to change to to raise price that exact same logic if you use that exact same logic on a vertical merger the if if you have a vertical merger between two different stages at in the same vertical supply chain they're complementary products and if you apply that exact same logic to complementary products then a merger would reduce price you know it's like why do why do super, supermarkets own their own parking lots well if they didn't they each of them would try to raise price to capture a share of the shopping dollar because you need to consume both you know the grocery store and the parking lot in order to to buy food and and when they compete, they raise price. And if you you let them you let them merge, then they lower price. And so it's the exact same logic that leads us to, to challenge horizontal mergers uh would lead us to kind of let vertical mergers go through. Now, having said that, there's a little bit of complicated, you know, the the one the one part of the story that I didn't get was, well, what happens to to rivals, non-merging rivals? And there is this effect called raising rivals costs that of uh, that, that complicates the vertical analysis, but, but the, you know, the first order merger effect is the exact opposite of, in verticals, the exact opposite of, of horizontal. So,
2: so by rivals, do you mean things like collusion and price fixing? Like I, I
0: remember. Oh, no, I was, no. Like, I, mean, different. I mean, so, so if, if, uh, so when I was at the, when I was at the justice department, we brought a vertical ver- <laughs> vertical merger case. And you know, I'm not allowed to divulge the internal deliberations of the Justice Department, but you know, given what I just said, you can probably figure out it, whether I thought that was a good case or not. We we blocked ATT Time Warner. And uh AT, you know, Time Warner had content, ATT had distribution, they owned direct TV, they were everywhere. And our theory of the case, and you know, I, I you know I supported it, uh, you know, in When I was at the Justice Department, it was really, really fun to watch. It was the first vertical, litigated vertical merger case in over 40 years. And our theory of the case was that the merged firm, AT&T Time Warner, would raise the price of Time Warner content to... Non-merging firms like Comcast, and that would be an anti-competitive effect. And the pro-competitive effect, of course, as I said before, that the, when you combine complementary products, there's an incentive to to lower price, and sometimes that's called uh, the elimination of double marginalization. It's 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 more nuanced than that, but that's that's the offsetting effect. And figuring out how to balance the raising rivals' costs against the vertical coordination or the vertical alignment of incentives which is pro-competitive is very nuanced very difficult and uh, those those cases are a mess and uh (laughs) there's you know i pity the judge that has to decide that i mean you know that they do their best, but I mean this is this is really nuanced kind of economics, you know, this PhD kind of style, nuanced stuff. And uh, you know, I I built these vertical merger models, and and just explaining them to somebody, you know, with non-merging right. If you if you don't have non-merging rivals, they're 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 pretty easy, but uh, but if you have the non-merging rivals, then you need game theory, and it's and and again, you know, I build those models. My closest colleague is a mathematician who's who's uh who's interested and in, you know we build these game theoretic models of competition and and simulate the loss of mergers and and I just can tell you from working with these models that the vertical merger the, the simple logic of vertical mergers they're almost always good it's really hard to find Find a vertical merger where the effect of, on non-merging rivals offsets the benefits to consumers. You know of the vertical coordination between the merging products.
2: Fascinating. So I, I'm curious. I, I'm going to uh, press you a little bit on okay. models Um so I, I'm fascinated by uh, this topic in general, and it is a very unlike other areas of economics. I feel like you know applied microeconomics. Think about tax policy. Uh, you have these sort of natural experiments where you know you can look at a tax change, and you know you have a say a treated state that you know lower tax rates and a control state that didn't, and you know you sort of look at the differences you know uh, on on various outcomes like you know, revenues or growth or something like that. And you measure that as your treatment effect, and you can do that in a lot of places. But you know co- competition is just uh, inherently a, a very uh, difficult and, and sort of very very model driven um, type of of economics. Um, you know, industrial organization, even though you know, we call it you know, the new empirical industrial organization or, or the new empirical IO, the, the sort of revolution of the 80s and 90s, it still relies on, even though it's empirical, it still relies on a lot of model assumptions. So, like, I, I'm curious, you know, when you think about you know, measuring consumer welfare, you know, this is the whole idea that uh, you're, you can reduce deadweight loss and, and increase you know, both, uh, you know, consumer surplus and producer surplus by making sure that that we have competition. Uh, and that we don't have uh, monopolistic firms uh, that's sort of the, the theory but you know, I'm curious like you know, do, do you use in terms of your actual metrics and data do you use things like say herschwinddel Hirschman indices to measure you know, the impact on on concentration in an industry sometimes it's like vague what your denominator is or, or you know how big is your uh you know your industry you know for example you know you could look at something like Google or Google search you know Google you know, dominates say 90 some odd percent of the the search online search um, category but if you know you were to say that the the real industry that Google's is in is marketing and marketing revenues or something like that. It's it probably has a very small share of uh, sort of market uh, marketing industry revenues. But I'm curious, are there other things like? Um,
1: that's shipstation.com with the code pod.
0: Oh, let's let Markups. I, I got to say something about the Google search case. So I am not I'm not working on this case so I can freely opine uh, about it, but uh the the it's got a huge problem. So first of all, they have to delineate a market narrowly enough so that they can say to a judge this this merger is going to eliminate competition in this market. And they've De- denominated, they've delineated a, what they call a vertical, I mean, a general search market. So Google, Bing and Yahoo, you know, DuckDuckGo is really tiny, but those three you know, and Google has probably 80, high 80s 90% of the general search market. And one of the things that the, mer- you know, that the repudiated merger merger guidelines by the uh, by the Biden administration says, the very we're concerned about market power and you and you think okay how first of all how would you do, how would you look at market power in how would you exercise market power in in search well you'd raise the price of advertising which gets you right back to okay is this a market for advertising and if they raise they raise the price you know is it a market for targeted advertising and you know so they've d- defined this general search model they you know which is very narrow but here's the huge problem. This is with monopolization cases. So the antitrust laws, there's three parts of the antitrust laws. One is horizontal uh, collusion. You know, you don't rig bids, allocate customers or agree not to compete with your rivals. And, but if you do, don't use the phone because it's every, t- it's so unbelievable. Whenever we prosecute these these these, coll- these criminal cases, people are calling each other before. Calling each other up before auctions. First thing we do is subpoena the phone records, and and they always, they always kind of you know put them in a prisoner's dilemma, and they always kind of fess up. But the the other part is you know horizontal mergers, price fixing, those are kind of loss of horizontal competition. That's fairly easy to understand. The monopolization cases are much much harder to understand. So first of all, you've got this you know paradox that you know we're only going after really successful firms so google's a really successful firm how did they get that way they innovated more than anybody else i mean i remember when i was back at the ftc we had google, google came in gave a presentation to us and they talked about how they developed their search tools and so what they do is they they find they find something wrong with their search tool and the example they they gave us was you know when you when you search for for essex they came up with porn sites, and they say, "Okay, something's wrong with our our algorithm." And it, and they, it, and it's a very, you know, it's and it's a very complicated problem. But they've simplified it down to, to you know, they when you put a query in, they put it in their own language, and when when they turn that language into a search, they have this reduced set of instructions that give you an, an answer in less than a half second. I mean, that's that's if they can't do that, people won't use it. And so so they've got this pretty complicated system. And so when they find problem like Essex, they play around with the code and they figure out what the problem is. And then they and then they A B test it. So then they take, they take a bunch of queries and they send them, you know, they're coming to Google search and they send it to the new, the new and upgraded Google search, and they send some to the old search and then they show, they show a bunch of People on Amazon Turk, you know what Amazon Turk is? Yes. So yeah, so they have paid people who who look at the two searches and and say, well, this one's better or this one's not better, and they won't ad- adopt an innovation unless if it lowers the quality of the search. And they, you know, they've been doing that for twenty years, and it's no wonder they have the best search engine in the world, and because they've been working hard on, you know, working harder on it than anybody else, and the fact that they're big. I I don't know. It's just it's there's so many problems with that thing. And here's the killer. But here's the killer. So if you look at look at all the big monopolization cases that occur once a generation, you look at uh, the IBM case. And you look at the Microsoft case. You look at you look at the Google case. You know they those are all monopolization cases. There's no relief. What are you going to do? I mean and 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 what are we going to do to google we say hey you you can't have such a good search engine you got to you got to give some share to somebody else i mean or in europe you know they they gave people a choice you know they say hey you can't you can't be the default engine on android and so they gave they gave consumers a choice and what did consumers choose they all chose google because everybody knows it's better so now you're the antitrust authorities what what the f is the justice department going to do if they win this case And I, and there's no relief. And, and if you look ahead, reason back chapter five of my textbook, you know, what, what everybody should do is look at, okay, what are we going to do if they win this case? Well, they don't know what they're going to do. There's no relief. And if there is no solution, there is no problem. And, and it's, that's just, it's such That's the real problem with these cases. There was no solution in the IBM case. There was no solution in the Microsoft case. And there certainly is no solution in the Google case that's not going to make everything you know, it's not going to harm consumers. And maybe that's the reason they want it. <laughs> you know, if I were a conspiracy theorist, go, oh, they're very clever. They get rid of this consumer welfare standards so they can break up Google and, and not be accused of, of harming consumers. So we don't care about that. Anymore. I don't know.
2: So, look, I want to get a little bit more into uh, the details of, you know, how exactly we measure the impacts on consumer welfare and the, the types of models. Uh, I want to push you a little bit on the the types of models that you're using. Because you know, IO and empirical IO, it still relies on models and some model assumptions, unlike say applied micro, where you know you have sort of like a treatment and control group, and you know the treated area receives the tax cut and the control group doesn't. You can look at various outcomes like output, or or you know uh, you can look at things like tax revenues and so forth. In IO and antitrust uh, sort of economics you're making some you're relying on some sort of assumptions what does the demand curve look like you know what does how do you measure the amount of consumer welfare that's gained or lost you know the the whole theory kind of hinges on you know, that an, a monopolist has a demand curve that looks a certain way uh you know an oligopolis has has uh, you know demand curves that look a certain way in a, a perfectly competitive market you demand curves that look in, in some way you have to measure demand curves um, somehow, and you have to measure, you know, cost curves. Um, somehow, I- I'm curious. You know, do antitrust authorities? How do they like measure markups when you have you know difficulties measuring things like marginal cost? You know, it's not easy to um, you know attribute uh, marginal cost. Certainly, if you're working with a, a multinational company, you know, things can be a, a little bit difficult. Um, how do you measure opportunity cost? You do you me- uh, do you assume things like Cournot competition? You know that has a, a, a big sort of so element to it. Do you use uh, things like BLP and Barry Levinson? Uh, and-
0: that's a great question. That's a great question. So when you're doing model-based inference, you can use the model to, you've, you basically fit the model to what you can observe, which is the, the current data. And typically you don't have very good data. You don't have the time or luxury to run a complete generalized demand system. You know, you're lucky if you get an aggregate elasticity and some shares, and that's about it. But been a lot of kind of effort to, you know, on the demand side saying, okay, let's let's try to let's try to develop these really, really cool conceptual, you know, these flexible functional forms. And we'll f- develop these really interesting ways to estimate them. There just isn't time in a merger investigation to do that, and it doesn't matter. You know the time, the times when we've been able to, to get a sophisticated, you know, demand model, uh, you know, like BLP and estimate it, and then simulate the the effects of the the merger. You know, it, it just didn't matter that much. And one of the things you also asked about. Was you uh, relative just a simple functional form like the logit model, which has you know just two parameters, and and so you give me some prices, shares, and aggregate elasticity of demand, and I can simulate a merger. And if you you tell me that you know these two products are closer than others, put me put them in a nest, and and uh, you give me some you know accounting data, and I can calculate you know price cost margins, and I can fit the model to those, those data. Or, you know, if I don't have those data, I can assume a a competitive interaction, write down all the first order conditions that define the Nash equilibrium, and then, and then use those to, to back out the marginal, the unobserved marginal costs. And then, so in the, in the first, that's called calibration, because it's not, it's not really estimation, but it's, but you see calibrate the model to to the shares and the prices and the elasticities and and the, you know and and any margins you can observe you know it's maybe four or five pieces the shares and the prices you know say it's a 10 you know a five firm industry so that's 10 pieces of information and then and then you get an elasticity and then and that's that's another piece of information and and you can you can use all that information and back out back out the parameters of the of the model and then you say okay well you know what what about if these two firms are closer substitutes than each other okay we'll put them in a nest that adds another parameter you give me a margin and and I can I can back out that nest parameter
2: fascinating. So and yet yeah, this is it's I'm sure there's um, quite a, a, a little bit of art as well as um, modeling
0: um, is an art. Yeah. 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 It's it's a real it's a real art. And you've got to be you've got to be flexible enough that one of the one of the kind of the. The really cool things about consulting, I'll put a plug in for, for consulting to all the grad students or, you know, any grad students that are out there. When you're an economist, an academic economist, you you choose the questions you answer and you choose questions that you can answer precisely. And so the questions that we can answer precisely are really, really, really narrow ones. And nobody, nobody gives a damn about them. But the ones that people care about are the you know kind of the the less precise like is this merger going to raise prices is is this and typically there's not enough information to run uh there's no good natural experiments either cross-sectionally or or with time series data or the the the, the data are not available or it's in lousy lousy condition and so you you ha- really have to go to a model based counterfactual and so you say okay the 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 observed world is what I can observe, and the counterfactual is the post merger world that I can observe. And once I calibrate the model, you know, to the observed observed world, I can use it to to forecast or or simulate the the unobserved counterfactual, which is the post merger world. And you know, sometimes the counterfactuals are different. We observe the monopolized world. What would the, or that we we observe the the collusion world, and we want to know what would have happened if these guys were competing. Well, you know, we can calibrate a model to a collusive observed equilibrium and then back out the then use those parameters to figure out what the equilibrium would look like if they were all competing. And, uh, you know, they're, they're, they're basically Nash equilibrium models, and we've developed these models that work for for bidding, for bargaining, for price setting, for quantity setting, for advertising, for, you know, for you with cap- capacity constraints, you name it. I mean, that's, that's what we do. You know, we build models that, you know, tractable models that we can calibrate to, you know, just a few pieces of information for all different kinds of industries. And uh, that's, that's been my professional life. It's really fun. It's really interesting. And uh, it's fascinating.
2: Well, it's fascinating. Uh, you know, this whole uh, approach—I uh, think—to uh, using models to think about, you know, how competition um, uh, impacts uh, consumer welfare, output. Uh, you know, the, the, the whole idea—you know—it it all goes back to that, you know, theory about uh, if you have a, a monopolist compared to the perfectly competitive case, you, know, you have less Q or less output, and, uh, and and this is sort of uh, everything in between that um, trying to. You know, think about um, how mergers um, impact things like output and consumer, consumer welfare. I, I'm curious. Like, I want to uh, just ask one sort of question here on yeah. uh, big tech and sort of uh, national security, which I think is a, a little bit different. I think a, a bit of a newer uh, uh, front uh, in these discussions, and it's different. I think from just the um, simple um, to uh, Lena Khan uh, uh, approach of you know everything that's big is bad, or the Uh, or or for example, um, the approach of, uh, you know, they've gone after uh, the, uh, you know, Microsoft acquisition of Activision, Blizzard. Um, I I think the the big tech sort of national security thing is is a little bit different. And I think that's one area that certainly irks uh, some uh, Republicans and and quite a few Democrats as well, which is, um, you know, even though, um, you know, tech firms provide lots of consumer surplus, you know, you have all these Apps like you know, Gmail and Facebook—they give away for free. You know, there's some caveat in that they're selling your data, and there's been some property rights issues there. They do sort of have a tremendous amount of political power. You know, Twitter censored the Hunter Biden New York Post laptop stories, sort of <laughs> or false news weeks before uh, the 2020 election. It turns out, you know, that story was actually true. You know, Apple is now canceling John Stewart's show apparently because it is talking negatively about the Communist Party of China. You know, there's some argument which is really a political argument not an economic one that you know these companies you know, may be influenced or captured by foreign enemies in that sense are, are google and facebook you know too large and too, and too powerful in a political sense you know, should political social, national security considerations matter when it comes to antitrust regulation or is is this really more in the domain of something like CFIUS rather than say the department of justice and the ftc
0: yeah i mean I think that there there are valid privacy concerns, and the tech giants are doing their best to address those privacy concerns. Because you know, they obviously you know the the GDPR has been been oh yeah. One thing you did not ask me about is the difference between you know China, the U.S. and and the and and the EU. And oh my gosh, it's it's we'll, we'll talk about that in a sec. But the GDPR is has almost killed innovation in 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 Europe you know what what is just amazing to me is that the the lack of innovation in Europe i mean if you look at you look you know, there's a lot of kind of there's a lot of metrics that you could use is like you use you can use the number of unicorns there's a, there's actually a guy at stanford this uh Ilya i forget, he's got a russian name st last name but he he collects data on unicorns he'd be a great guy to interview on your show you know the number of unicorns in Europe is is pitiful. I mean, they they really undercook cook their coverage. Or or you know, relative to the U.S., you look at the age of of companies on on say the CAC forty. You know, what's the the age of the top ten firms in Europe versus the top ten firms in the United States? They're all over hundred years old in Europe. In the United States, are they're, they're twenty five years old? That's the average age of the top ten firms. And I think that just goes to the dynamism of our economy and the huge advantage we have over Europe. And, and the, the question that I kind of, you know, against that backdrop to get back to your question is like, whom do you want, you know, deciding what, what the future looks like? Do you want these firms that are, that are beholden to their customers and that are constrained by competition? Do you want them deciding or do you want some government official Deciding, like Lena Khan or me, do you want us deciding what what should go down? And and I think the answer is absolutely clear. And and if we want innovation, which I think that you know, there's the the you know, in your uh, grad school classes, you learn about the solo growth models, and and. Uh, growth, technological growth. And that's, this is growth that can't be explained by growth and labor. You know, think about a production function. You've got output as a function of capital and labor, you know, and you, and then you, then you try to fit that model to the data and you see there's a huge component that's unexplained by either capital labor. They call that, you know, total factor productivity. And you'll, you'll, you'll learn about that. You know, that is, is the technological innovation that, that drives our standard of living. I mean, we, we we have grown, you know, and what makes us the richest country in the world is that we we started growing a lot faster uh, than anybody else. So, you know, a long time ago, China China has been unbelievable, you know, since 1978 when they kind of got private property and kind of got you know got this this version of cat this version of capitalism. Uh, they've grown really really fast and uh, their standard of living has is, is, you know gone gone up really fast but it's this incentive alignment kind of letting the markets do their work and president xi i think has probably killed the egg that lay, or goose that laid the golden egg and by attacking all the the growth firms in china but but i mean i think yeah the counterfactual to that thing is okay yeah you might be right you know that there is some some threat to national security, but I mean, you can always, I mean, but what's the counterfactual? So do you want, do you want the government controlling these firms? I mean, the cost I think would just be enormous and always think about, well, what's the alternative? Well, you know, so we got a bunch of government bureaucrats deciding, you know, what these, what these firms can do. And, and, you know, there's always a, there's always a balance, but, but, and, you know, when we go from administration to administration, it's a little movement, you know, left, right. But, you know, basically in antitrust, we agree on, on what the goal is, you know, the Biden administration has been a, uh, an outlier in that, you know, they're, they, they want to, they want to turn back the clock, and and the institutions of government are not letting them. The courts are not letting them, and Congress isn't letting them. And and that's the beauty of our checks and balances. You can't just come in here with a you know a an overzealous, what I would call a a, a zealous or you know I, actually I've never heard that word without overzealous over in front of it, but but uh, a zealous a zealous enforcer who thinks that way too many mergers and that's the that's hurt, harmed American consumers, and it's. I think that's just a radical misreading of what's what's happened. And and we are so frigging lucky to live in the United States where we have this relatively open, innovative economy. Because there there was that's what's making us you know that's what's making us rich. And uh, you know let's let's not let's not lose sight of that. And all you have to do is look at places like like Europe where you know they. You know, if you want to innovate in Europe, you know, first of all, you know, they can't tolerate the kind of inequality that comes from innovation. They couldn't tolerate a, a Jeff Bezos in Europe. You know, they they you know, so Jeff Bezos wouldn't wouldn't be able to innovate in 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 Europe, you know, not to mention the the regulatory miasma. Uh, that that makes it hard to move assets to higher valued uses, you know, it's just it's too difficult. And I think, you know, when you when I talk to my colleagues in Europe, that's what they're concerned about. You know, the the regulatory overlay that's killing growth. I mean, they just don't see the same tradeoffs that we do. I mean, when you you talk about, you know, your question kind of implying, hey, we need m- more government and and I'm immediately thinking about the trade-offs. And, and I'm thinking, oh my gosh, what 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 are we what would be given up with with more government control? And and they just don't think about trade-offs that way. And and President Xi, I don't think does either. And and I think that and you haven't even mentioned the really big uh, elephant in the in the room, which is which is the declining birth rates. I mean, you know, China's dead, Europe's dead, and we would be dead but for the immigration. And, you know, we've got lots of immigration, so we still have a decent growth pyramid. And, you know, China's China's growth pyramid is is starting to get inverted, as is Europe's. And, uh, you know, the the un, the ironic or your, your unintended consequence of the illegal immigration, which we're letting, you know, a lot of. Yeah, obviously, you know, it is the right way to do that. We want, you know, security checks, make sure we're not letting in terrorists. But the benefit of letting a lot of kind of young, healthy people in the United States, you know, in the prime of their life, that's going to save save our aging population, saving us from the kind of demographic death that is China and and the EU anyway.
2: And and not to mention, I mean, legal migrants, too. Is, you know, certainly, uh, migrants uh, from uh, from from India in particular uh, t- tend to be much more uh, innovative uh, in terms of their patenting output than uh, than say the uh, the average you know American who's who's born here. So it's fascinating, and there's been I mean there's been a lot of work that's been done on on uh, the connection between uh, immigration and in uh, innovation by folks like Bill Kerr and others. And, and I, I fully agree with you uh, that um, yeah you know, I, I think these um, antitrust trust regulations closely aligned with Economic growth challenges and, and innovation, and um, yeah, it seems. And I totally agree with your analysis that so far it seems like uh, you know, the new Brandesian Lena Khan uh, war that uh, has not been successful so far, and that they've just continued to to lose cases that they've brought. That certainly the the judiciary, the FDC, DOJ staff, and 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 much of Congress is very much um, opposed to their attempt to overturn the uh, the consumer welfare stand, uh, standard.
0: Oh, so I've been thinking about this so I've been actually modeling the the antitrust process and kind of uh, looking at what what uh, chair Khan is doing and uh they they have made the Hartscott, there's filing there's filing fees that, that you have to file before you you even think and they've made that made that thing really long onerous and kind of open. The, and it's really hard to gather the information. They've quadrupled the filing fees, and if you think about that as a tax on mergers, you know, kind of think about it, there's good mergers and there's bad mergers. Well, we're we're deterring good and bad mergers. You know, so if you're if you think that most of the mergers are bad, you're thinking, hey, tet- let's tax the hell out of the mergers. But if you think that hey, there's that most of the mergers, you know, 98 90, percent of the mergers that come through the Justice Department never even get a second request. Uh, so most of those are good. We're deterring a lot of good mergers. You know, call those type one errors. And uh, instead of filtering, and and you know, you think about, I want, I don't want a tax that that deters all merger. I want a filter that does that distinguishes the good from the bad. And what what the this agency has done is they they've dramatically raised the cost. They've dramatically rate increase the uncertainty of the process and the and the the cost and the uncertainty are deterring all mergers uh I think that's you know you think about the you know what's what's the wealth creating engine of capitalism. It's the movement of assets to higher valued uses and if and our biggest and most valuable assets are corporations, and if we can't move those to higher valued uses, we are gonna we're we're gonna you know kill the goose that laid the golden egg absolutely i uh yeah.
2: fully agree with that. This has been uh, such an interesting conversation, uh, Luke. It's been a, a real honor to have you on. Thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, I'm, I enjoyed it, and thank you very much. Today, our guest was Luke Frogue, who is a professor of management at the Vanderbilt University Owen School of Management and the former chief economist at the Department of Justice Antitrust Division and the former chief economist at the FTC. This is the Capitalism and Freedom, the Twenty First Century Podcast, where we talk about economics, markets, and public policy. I'm John Hartley, your host. Thanks so much for joining us.
1: You give me-